Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm excited to talk to Rashid Newsom about My Government Means to Kill Me. Welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me as well. This cover is very stunning, and so is the title of your book. Um, What was the impetus for this particular title, and did you have any input on the cover? Um, Well, the title... Is, I'm actually horrible at titles. I mostly write in television, like Bel Air and The Shy and Narcos. And I have a writing partner. And I think out of 30-something episodes we've written together, I've come up with the title twice. <laughs> but it's not my gift. And so when I was writing this book, I, it had no title for a very long time. I was calling it an aggressive act of homosexuality, like in my head. All right. You know? But, but um, one of the characters giving sort of an impassioned speech says the line, my government means to kill me. And and I was like, oh, there we go. That's, it. that's what this is about. That's what this, <laughs> that's at the heart of what this story is. Um, and so once we had it, I knew it, it was sort of unshakable. Uh, every, you know, when my editors and agents, everybody else heard the title, there was no argument. There was no, we're on board. I love the, it. The cover was pretty straightforward too. I mean, I sent in a lot of references um, I think me and, and the editors and publishers all agree that the book should sort of announce itself as if this is a gay book, this is a black book. Um, you know, with a title like My Government Means to Kill Me, there was a bit of a feeling that you could think this was something like a political manifesto or that could go either way. And we're like, oh, no, no, you're picking up. This is a gay book. Like, <laughs> be Don't be mistaken. And so uh, they came with this, 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 the, the cover, and it was the first one I saw. It was beautiful. Um, I, I mean, I remember I was in a hotel room in Philly because we were shooting the Bel Air pilot and it was five in the morning and it came through and I was, I was crying. I was happy. I was like, let's do this. I, it is very stunning. I will say that everywhere I go and I see it in a bookstore, it really does stand out. And that is something that is a, a great testament to a wonderful book as well. So congratulations. Thank you. So I know why, but will you tell the audience why it's set in the 80s? It's set there because I grew up, you know, I'm 44, so everybody could do the, do the math. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was not old enough to be uh, an adult in the 80s or even a young adult in the 80s. But as a black gay man, I have spent my entire life wondering who I would have been during that time period. I mean, that is... That is the testing ground for that community. Much as as a black person, I've always wondered who I would have been during the heat of the civil rights movement. And having thought about that for easily decades, it's something I got to explore through this character and in this novel. What was it to be somebody young and largely politically unaware and suddenly find yourself pulled into a movement? I have such I have incredible admiration for the people who were an act up or, or did anything during that time, because a lot of them, that was their first movement. And my God, were they effective? You know, 
I, you know, that was one of the things that I was really impressed about was, you know, um, let's come back to ACT UP in just a second. So yeah. your character, Trey, has moved to New York City and escaped Indiana. Did you want to escape Indiana as well as a teenager? I, I did. I mean, before I was a teenager, I grew up in Indiana. And I tell people, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's seemingly very polite and very nice. There's a lot going on under the surface. There's a lot not being said. <clears throat> but I grew up feeling like I lived in a black and white world and I was in Technicolor. And I just believed there had to be other places where Technicolor was the norm. And so I was ready to go very early. <laughs> I totally agree. So that was one of the things, because I'm a little bit older than Trey, your main protagonist. Um, but I grew up in Eastern North Carolina and I felt the exact same way. I, I think I remember winters more than any other season mm -hmm. because it was so black and white and it was so gray. And I just kept, I would watch every television show that was set in New York City because I just was destined for the big city from very early on. I got a little rude awakening when I did get to the big city, sort of like Trey did. You know, it's not quite as easy as television would portray it to yeah, be. Yeah, well, the city's not waiting for you to show up. <laughs> Excellent <laughs> point. The feeling is like, oh, like in a movie, it's like, oh, you've arrived. Well, here are your friends and here's your job. It's all sorted out for you, cute little place. And, and that's, of course, not how that works. Yeah, the train arrives and you step off the train. I will say, because this is a this is an indication of what it was like my very first day arriving in Miami. I was sitting on the side of the street having a, a, a Burger King meal when my car got egged. That was my welcome to Miami. So it's very, it's, you know, we all have these things about what we think life will be like. But I wouldn't trade it for the world because had I stayed where I was, it would not have worked. I think that was the thing about Trey that I was just in there rooting for Trey from the first page because I'm like, this fella is taking his life into his own hands and he's moving the ball forward. And I well, loved that. Thank you. And there's something about Trey that I really was important to me in this story. And um, I understand that in a lot of sort of queer books, the, the person is coming to terms with their sexuality or they're, they're trying to finally identify it or come out. And I really wanted to tell a story about somebody who was openly and sort of, it was effeminate and could live in that. Yes. And also somebody who didn't necessarily have to come out. I just want to remind everybody that not everybody needs that or even gets that opportunity. Some of us are pegged quite early. <laughs> like before, any, before we know, before we have the language, yeah. everybody understands this boy is gay. Totally and we understand it. And it's and that's a that's a very different way to interact with the world. Yes. Yes. And I think I, I will say that for myself, everyone else managed to call me queer before I could find the words for it. Yeah. It though for some of us, it gave us a bit of a, a, a sort of a way to push back a little bit, to be a little more fabulous in our own way. And mm -hmm. I, you know, Trey goes to New York and he meets these incredible people. The, I was so happy that the Mount Morris bath was in here because I, so I went to New York in the eighties. I know where Trey lived in the eighties. Yeah. And I thought what you did was you brought history into a modern book. Yeah. Our book of today, but you talk about history in such a loving way. And Trey meets a lot of wonderful characters along the way. And he finds himself in ways that I don't think, 
that I would have thought if I was, if somebody said, pitched your book to me, I don't think I would have found the way to find all the things you did. And you did such a wonderful job at that. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm trying to do that thing that I believe happens in the lives of most of us, which is, you know, whether you go to college or not or whatever, those those early 20s where there are a lot of tight friendships and everything seems very important. And you finally get to become the version of yourself that is an adult. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm you're free from family, you're free from obligation. And the, the world is almost asking, well, who are you? Right. And you get to sort of finally give that answer in your own terms. And a great thing about being young is that you can you can move, change lanes, you can move directions. You know, when you get to a certain age, most of society assumes that you're going to stay put in your lane because yeah. you've already picked your lane. A great thing about being in your 20s is you get to pick that lane and change it whenever you want. I did with hair color, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you do a lot of, I mean, I know this, but I mean, how much research did you do for this? What's well, funny, I mean, like I had, I mean, and this is, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty lazy this way in the sense that I'd been doing research all my life. I had, I mean, this period, I had seen the documentaries, I'd read the books, I'd talked to people who had been sort of, who lived through it. And so it was really the research for this was pretty, um, it was pretty detailed. It was pretty like, okay, I need something for this gap. Mm -hmm. I need to, you know, I mean, my biggest fear was just sort of making sure that the people I wanted were alive and around and, and available. I mean, one of the things I, I initially was a little scared of was putting real people in the book. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe you'll do one or two. The thing I, I will remind everybody and what I was trying to make clear in the book is that in the mid 80s, some of these people who now have become legends and icons mm -hmm. were people you could just see at a coffee shop sure. in 1985. Mm -hmm. And there's there's something like Fran Leibowitz said this thing about the art world in the early 80s. She goes, they, they all could have been at the same dinner party. That's how small the art world was at that particular time. And I felt that way about you know, when it came to like gay rights advocacy, like they had, these people knew each other and they'd been kicking yes. around for a while and they're not quite bold face names yet. I mean, you know, Rustin had been and probably been forgotten actually by them. He might have been many people. Oh, he's still alive. And Larry was certainly making a name for himself on the national scene, but he wasn't revered, I think, like he was later. That came later. I agree with you. I think in a lot of ways he was reviled. He uh, he butted heads with a lot of the establishment of New York. And so I wrote it down, the assimilation gaze. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of those. And, you know, it was very, if you had not been in the trenches of, say, the civil rights movement, uh, a lot of gay people were trying to just move into being comfortable with everyone else. Yeah. But as we as we know, that doesn't always work. And then when you have assimilation gays who are actually working against moving the ball ahead for everyone. I remember in reading this that I remembered going to New York in the 80s and even the 90s and probably even after 2000 and how very segregated bars were. There were bars for people of color and there were bars for 
white guys and there were bars for lesbians, but there wasn't a lot of mixing. There was some, but not nearly what it should have been. And the dinner party gays only wanted their little world put forward and no one else. And that was, so when Trey gets into Act Up, I loved that part because Act Up was like, nah, we're not going to play that game. Yeah. Well, it was, it. I mean, there was a, I mean, I think what the assimilation gays missed time and time again is that all our fates are tied. I don't care how much money you have, and I don't know, who, and I don't care who's in your Rolodex back in the days of Rolodexes. <laughs> but this, but you know, we if we don't look after each other on a whole, we're all sunk. And and they were late to figuring that out. If and some of them probably never figured that out. Well, and in war, there's that term divide and conquer. So when we as a gay community or LGBTQ plus community were fractured and we were fighting against each other, the establishment says, oh, look, there's a hole, there's a crack, let's wedge it, let's put them against each other. ACT UP was probably the first organization I remembered in the LGBTQ world that came together and said, we're in this together. And the title of your book is so apropos for that because our government does mean to kill us. That's exactly what was going on in the 80s and even into the 90s with presidents who couldn't even say the word AIDS. Yeah. I mean, just and I, I mean, when we talk about assimilation gays, it, I should say it hasn't quite left us. I mean, we saw for years, I think less so today, but assimilation gays would have been the ones who said, you know, trans rights, that needs to wait. Mm -hmm. Why don't we hold up? We're doing this over here. That's a different, and I'm like, no, that's us. We're all, we're all, all of us. Yeah. But, but the idea that, you know, I, I mean, I remember people saying like that expression, wait your turn. And I thought, whoa, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that, that is, that's mm -hmm. that assimilation gay mentality. It is. And then having grown up uh, in the South, I heard the phrase, uh, they know their place often. Mm -hmm. And that is the exact same thing. Just a different set of words. We will wait for your rights yeah. or we can accept them because they don't make waves and that kind of stuff. I remember as a kid thinking there's something fucked up about this. And well, it well, just, it is, I mean, assimilation is not viable for a lot of us. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, one of the things I had to really get used to in my life was I was like, Oh, wherever I go, I am not going to be a wallflower. Like it's just <laughs> not going to happen for me, but I could just sit there and and the bullies won't notice me oh. and the teachers won't know. And, you know, like it, it, you're going to be noticed. So you better figure out how you're going to stand up for yourself and who you're going to be, kid, because it's, it's, it. it's, you're never going to be invisible. And unfortunately, in the LGBTQ world, we also don't have a hierarchy of people to bring up the others. We have some people who are doing that. But if you look at like a college situation, you know, you go to college and there are professors and, and teachers and you know administration who want to move you up. And yeah. unless we get that into our everyday lives, there will be people left behind. My, my husband will kill me for telling this story, but I'm going to tell the story. We went to an event once and it was like an upstate New York gay couple, beautiful acres and acres of this land gorgeous estate, like millions of dollars, just wealth on display. And 
I was like, when did you get this place? And they were like, oh, like 1986, 87. And I had this really visceral response. Like I was like, and I, and I really couldn't talk to the host for the rest of the event. And, and I, and I didn't understand even in the moment what it was. And later I said to my husband, I thought he bought all that land while his people were dying. Yes. That's what, oh, his response to AIDS was let's move to the country. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 you know, and I, that's judgy and I, you know, I, maybe I don't know his life and all this, and maybe he gave a lot, but that's how I felt looking at this extravagance. And I thought you abandoned us. You checked out. Yes. So, but it's well, I, and you know, I, I totally can understand where that would come from because I think that there are things that happen in our lives that we realize that so many people are left behind. And it wasn't his responsibility to take everyone else with him. But yeah. I totally understand where you're coming from because it's sort of like, hey, we needed you back here and you were out there in opulence. Uh, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's, I mean, and by the way, I mean, I, this book is set almost 40 years ago, but these questions are still with us. What do we owe our, our brothers and sisters and, and everybody else in the spectrum? What do we, you know, we all want to, we all want to live in nice lives, but there's got to be a sense that we are connected to another community and that we're not going to just, you know, close the shutters on our windows well, and I think that one of the things I wrote a whole bunch of notes about this, and I don't want to necessarily get too far down a rabbit hole in racism, but one of the things that I thought is we have one day for Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. We have Rustin is out now. I'm at this point in life, I'm tired of what I might say, a gift, a token. We have to tell all of the stories. All yeah. of the stories have to be out there and we have to celebrate all of the diversity because what we do see in great parts of this country is, oh, we're not going to talk about, about that kind of history. We're going to erase this over here. Here, let me give you a piece of candy so you won't talk. I, yeah. I'm, I'm way past that at this point. Well, that's and, and the one of the things I like about the genre of historical fiction is that it plays into something that I, I think... Is, is central, which is the further we get away from the event, typically the more honest we can be about it. Yes. And yeah. so I think now when you, you start looking back 30 years, 40 years into a story, we can we can talk a little bit about the messiness. We don't have, everybody doesn't have to be an upstanding, perfect, squeaky clean character. I mean, it was very important to me. I mean, there, I mean, you know, during the height of this, the AIDS crisis, my main character is still having sex, mm -hmm. sometimes protected, sometimes not. That's a reality. It is that's a reality. Just, that's a reality of life. And, you know, it's not the decision. I, you know, I would love for everybody to be safe and I'd love for sex to be something that was like carefree. That isn't what the world he lived in. Mm -hmm. But I wanted, I, I mean, like there's a world in which I thought, well, I could tell this story and I could, I could give him a boyfriend or I could make him chase. But I was like, that's not exactly what was happening. And, and in little ways, I like that we can just be more honest about yes. behavior that might seem contradictory, that might seem messy, but let's, let's just talk about it. And, let, and let's have a real honest conversation because some people were coupled. I have lots of friends that were coupled during the AIDS crisis. I have lots of friends who were not. You yeah. know, and, and one's actions doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're being... 
sloppy or irrelevant or well, I mean, people do what they do. Something that's unspoken about yes. misfortune in this country, in this country, whether it's medical, financial, whatever. There's a feeling that, well, what did you do to bring this upon yourself? Ooh. Which is just wrong. It's, it's wrong. wrong. It doesn't matter. No, we we have with AIDS. It was always very different. If you had cancer in the 80s, people said, oh, my goodness, that is so horrible. If you had AIDS in the 80s, a lot of people said, well, what did you do? Were you not protecting yourself? Mm -hmm. There were a million ways to get AIDS. It wasn't just one way. Yeah. And but it is not. It gets gets it also with like, I mean, what's funny. So even with cancer, what I find is what people want. They ask questions because they want to know how it's not going to happen to them. So if I said someone had cancer, you go, well, what kind? I go, lung cancer. Were they a smoker? Well, yes. And you feel better because you go, well, I'm not doing that. Yeah. It won't that come is, get me. That is very true. I had, ne- I had never really thought of it that way. It's very, very true. So you have given us a slice of historical fiction, and it feels and reads like a nonfiction, even though I know it's fiction. So yeah. I do commend you on that because you've managed to sort of straddle two uh, lanes at the same time. So no, thank you. I mean, that's, that's what I'm going for. That magic trick of, you know, it's a novel <laughs> and I want you to go back to the cover and goes, this, did this happen? Mm. And it's what I, I mean, nobody, nobody has assigned me this role in all of literature, but it's what I want to do. Well, um, I like going through history and telling you primarily what the black gay men were doing. Cause it's a lens we don't, normally look at history through and it's a very particular experience and so i i mean i'm I'm happy to do it well i'm looking forward to the next installment whichever way you go how's that thank you again the book is called my government means to kill me do you have a website or social media you'd like to share Absolutely. Uh, my website is RashidNewson.com. I'm on TikTok at RashidNewson, N-E-W-S-O-N. And I'm on Instagram at Rashid.Newson.Author. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining me, Rashid. I had a great time. Thank you, Dan. I had fun. Thank you. Good. Hang on for me just a second. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out with Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.